Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. The good, the bad and the controversial. We all want to do the right thing, or imagine that we want to do the right thing, but from suicide bombers to Catholic priests, uh, we've never been able to agree quite what the right thing is. Should we give up on morality and see it as a fiction designed to justify our beliefs, or is it still the most important tool to measure human behavior? So that's the question we are going to be grappling with, and no doubt in some form or other that we all have to grapple with in our lives. So uh, I'm going to give each of the panel just three minutes to uh, present their case on is morality a fiction designed to justify our beliefs. With me to discuss this, Naomi Goulder, who's head of philosophy at the New College of Humanities and author of Philosophy of Action, clearly central to the questions we're going to be talking about today. Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche, 19th century philosopher, thought that our ordinary uh, social morality of impersonal self-denial was fundamentally unhealthy, a kind of psychological sickness um, that wouldn't survive, crucially, a clear-sighted understanding of its own origins. Um, So I want to agree with Nietzsche that our ordinary or parts of our ordinary moral rhetoric are unhealthy for us, they are deceptive in various ways, and in general that they couldn't survive that kind of clear-sighted understanding. Uh, Three features of moral moral rhetoric that I think are particularly uh, pernicious perhaps are, first of all, its claim to absolute authority. So Nietzsche saw this as, in a way, a a remnant of a belief in uh, God, and it's a sort of pretension that the moral uh, views that we have are in some ways absolutely right, not just our opinion or something that's that's relative to our culture and so on. also the feature of morality that is that it's universal that in some sense the same answers should apply to everyone that if there's an answer about how to live it should be somehow applying to to someone with one kind of character just as much to someone with another and thirdly the idea that morality is fundamentally about self-denial Nietzsche thought that was one of the most unhealthy things about morality as it presented itself as being and he thought that if we could really look at it clear-sightedly we would see that we needed to change it to make it more compatible with human flourishing and I think uh, that that's all right Uh, 
and I think in particular the idea that morality is about self-denial is problematic in a culture like ours where you get um, politicians, you get the media advertisers, you get economic models, all suggesting that it's fundamentally rational and natural to be self-interested, to maximise satisfaction of our own preferences. And I think that means that we're stuck in this sort of double think where we're both told that it's rational to maximise our own self-interest and simultaneously told with this beguiling moral ought that looks like a sort of trick oh no, but you ought to do this self-sacrificial thing. I think that's a very unhealthy tension, one that really we can only live with by um, sort of shutting our eyes and closing off debate. Um, but I want to disagree with Nietzsche about what follows. I think if we were to clear-sightedly uh, have, a, have a debate about how we should live our lives that got rid of this magical force attached to ought and just took seriously the fact that there aren't answers that are given to us by an absolute authority, but we have to come up with them ourselves, I think unlike Nietzsche who thought that, we, that the higher uh, type would, would, uh, should act in ways that were solitary, fundamentally unsociable, um, and purely self-interested at the expense of others, I think that we would then have room for a much more social cooperative vision um, that uh, we might draw some ideas from Rousseau to find, find uh, scope for a much more positive morality that we could uh, accept and understand and live with uh, clear-sightedness. Samir Rahim, who's arts and books editor at Prospect UK, uh, previously at The Telegraph. There are a number of ways that we can justify um, morality um, to argue that it isn't merely a fiction, or if it is a fiction, then it's one that's an incredibly important one. Um, the work of Jane Goodall, um, who worked with chimpanzees in the 1960s and 1970s, is completely fascinating, because she discovered a kind of proto-morality within the relationships of chimpanzees. Um, so if a chimpanzee had um, became more dominant um, and in somehow had um, control of a situation, another chimpanzee would... Um, would have to do obeisance to them and would have to sort of um, uh, praise them and, uh, uh, and, and, and um, give them uh, a sense of power over them. In response, the more dominant chimpanzees would sometimes acquiesce and eat some, eat some ticks off their back or whatever. Now, that's, that's a, a relationship that comes before humanity, let alone civilization, religion and all the rest of it. But in that, you can see that in any social relationship, there are always going to be negotiations involved with power and uh, morality. You know, the Greeks had an idea of, uh, Aristotle had the idea of eudaimonia, an idea of a, um, a flourishing life. And that was closely linked to the idea of virtue, the idea that an individual should cultivate good behavior because that was something that would lead to the civic polity living in um, uh, a greater sense of um, uh, balance and, um, I suppose, cooperation. Um, one thing that I think Aristotle um, lacked, and I think Greek society in general, it was, of course, a slave society, um, was that sense of um, compassion or even the self-denial that uh, Nomi was talking about, which I happen to think is quite a valuable, valuable thing, contra, contra Nietzsche. Um, and I think that that came about through uh, religion. I think that um, often monotheistic religions, including Christianity, um, and Islam, two religions that I know best, I suppose, um, I feel like that idea, with certainly in Christianity, sort of the ideal of the self-sacrifice, is an incredibly powerful idea. And we see that again and again. In 20th century figures, from Martin Luther King to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, uh, to many others, we see the idea that um, 
acting uh, in a way that is against your own interests and in the interests of others or an ideal moral standard, Dietrich Bonhoeffer opposing the Nazis, for example, um, is something that um, still has incredible pull um, and power. Um, in Islam, for example, the Quran, what is so interesting about it is that it seems like it's almost a combination of Old Testament fire and brimstone morality balanced in some ways by New Testament sympathetic, compassionate morality. So there's always this dynamic between extremely um, uh, sort of fire and brimstone sense of you'll be condemned to hell for doing wrong and you must have justice and you must have all this, but also there's compassion and no be mercy and, and that, that sort of dialectic I think is incredibly important. Some of the most interesting people um, writing about morality today are people who are not necessarily philosophers. Um, philosophers will often come up with scenarios of where we try and um, uh, work out what the moral thing is to do. So, you know, well, what happens if you have 20 people who you could kill to feed one, you know, in, in, you know on a track or train track and there's a fat man there and all the other things. Uh, for me, these are really bad fictions and the people who we should look to are people uh, like novelists. Um, uh, a novelist like Jane Austen, for example, um, who is an incredibly powerful moralist, and the reason she's a powerful moralist is because she recognises the limits of her own moral judgement. But maybe I'll come on to talk about that a bit later. Brendan O'Neill is a journalist who writes regularly for the New Statesman, The Spectator and The Guardian, and he's editor of Spiked Online, which was formerly Living Marxism, uh, which is the journal of the Revolutionary Communist Party, or was. I was on a climate change demo a few years ago, um, observing it, not taking part in it, I must say. And I was really struck because one of the banners that they were holding up at the front of the demonstration said, the science has spoken. And as a former Catholic, I was raised a Catholic, I was educated by nuns, it really brought back memories of when people would say to us, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, God has spoken and you must obey him. And it really got me thinking of how... What we've had in the West over the, over the recent decades, I think, has been a real retreat from morality and a retreat into evidence-based judgment or into science, or, or, or as I would describe it, the exploitation of science to achieve what would once have been considered, mor considered moralistic ends. And everything now that was traditionally justified in moral terms is now increasingly justified by the science. It always has the at the start. The science. You know, it's, it's definitive. You must obey it. For example, drugs. Drugs were once frowned upon because they were immoral. It was depraved to waste your life taking drugs. Now we hear scientific arguments. They will do this, they will do that, they will damage you by this amount. The apocalypse was traditionally a very moralistic, religious idea. It's been, a, it's been an idea that's existed almost as long as human beings have. The world will end because of your wicked behaviour. So either change your ways or prepare yourself for God's judgement. That has also been scientized, and now we have the uh, environmental apocalypse, the weather of mass destruction. The idea that because we don't recycle enough, or because we drive to supermarkets, or because we are careless in how we live our lives, we will be punished by nature. So that's also been given a scientific spin. Even censorship. Censorship was the great moralistic, the terrible moralistic crusade of the past. Uh, you know, this image is depraved, do not look at it. Now we have media effects, which is this pseudoscience, which says that if you watch this film, this will happen. If you read this book, this will happen. So I'm really interested in the retreat from moral judgment into the use of science to try and change people's behaviour. I think that's bad for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it denigrates science. The more that science is 
used to achieve political ends, the more that science becomes polluted or potentially polluted. Um, and also I think it's bad for political moral life because people are no longer trusted to make judgments, to make moral judgments about their lives. And instead they need all these kind of new experts and these new, uh, the new priestly class, except now they come with a clipboard and a white coat rather than with a kind of white collar. Um, and I, I would just say I'm in favour of morality, not moralism. I think what we've heard about so far is, is kind of moralism. It's this kind of judgmentalism. Don't do this or you will be punished. I, have, I take the more enlightenment view of morality, uh, Kant's view that we should use moral reasoning to impact on the world. So we should be reasoned and rational, but we should also be driven by a moral sense of what's good and what's right and what's bad and what's wrong. And I would say that it isn't morality that tells us how we should live, but rather I think morality is intimately linked with freedom. It's only by being free and having freedom of choice that we can become moral beings, that we can become morally autonomous. And I just want to end on John Stuart Mill. The point John Stuart Mill makes in On Liberty is that the more freedom we have to, to determine our own destinies, the more capacity we have to become morally responsible because then you are in charge of your life. If you have someone wagging their finger at you, you're not in charge of your life, and, and Mill says you're no better than an ape. So I would say freedom precedes morality. It's by being free that we become moral. And uh, Sam Roddick, uh, founder of the erotic boutique Coca de Mer. She's also a trustee of the Roddick Foundation and has been a campaigner for promoting the positive discussion of uh, sex and eroticism. I'm going to be a lot more personal uh, about my argument um, because personally I don't attach my ethics or my morals, I don't even like the word morals because I find that's very religiously based, so um, to institutes um, at all because I find them extraordinarily unreliable and they're forever changing according to their own agenda. So for me, I feel like the most important thing is for me to define my own philosophy and within that my own understanding of ethics and morals and what I want to govern my own life by. So for me, I have come to my own personal conclusion that I live my life by causing least harm possible. And I feel that that is on an individual level my responsibility, but also on a social level. And I want to proselytize that perspective. I feel that we're living in a closeted world where actually we are not free and we're not free for information, that we have to dig really hard and deep to find the truth. For instance, we're all wearing, we are told that slavery no longer exists, but our clothes, I can guarantee you 90% of the clothes or 99% of the clothes that we're wearing in this room is attached to slavery. That is not a consensual choice. When you went to the, um, to the counter, you did not say, please may I have my top that's attached to slavery. So therefore, how can I be in the world and cause least harm possible when all the parts of the information are not revealed, they're closeted? So in my strive for a um, le least harm 
possible community. I am looking for total and utter transparency. And in that transparency, I do believe and agree that we can start holding a much more kind of ethical core. I, if you look at the world and you see it is the richest people in the world that are causing the most pain. And if you look at the countries that hold the, uh, the richest resources in the world, like the Congo, the DRC, they actually have the poorest societies. So for me, I think that we need to constantly question our governments, and we need to constantly question ourselves, and we need to constantly question religious institutes, because they're completely and utterly unreliable. The debate. Theme one. So I think we started off with the idea that we all, uh, in a way, are attached to being moral, and I think all of our panellists have exhibited that uh, facet, so in their own way, they all want to be moral. The question is whether that morality is a subjective fiction, or whether it is founded on some more general and uh, objective uh, framework that I'd want to begin uh, our discussion with. So I'd understood you, Naomi, as saying uh, that there is no overall objective framework and indeed th this is something we should be wary of and is dangerous, is that yeah. right? Yeah, and that it would be a good and healthy and in the end I think ethically kind of emancipatory move to just acknowledge the fact that there isn't this authority. Um, as Sam was saying, actually this deference to these authorities can be itself dangerous because um, you know, who knows what they'll tell us what to do. Um, so, so yeah, so but, but what happens, having freed people to think for themselves, and this was also Brendan's point, after you've got the freedom to think for yourself, what happens, I think the jury's out, it's partly an empirical question, and um, someone like Nietzsche maybe thought that, if we, it, it, that at least certain types of people would, uh, would be very solitary and powerful and maybe exploitative as a result of recognizing that they weren't cowed by, they didn't need to be cowed by religion. Um, whereas you get other philosophers like um, David Hume, who had this much more positive view of human nature, who thought the seeds of kind of benevolence and fellow feeling were in us all. So anyway, and I think maybe that's what you're exhibiting, so, Sam. <laughs> Sam, are you comfortable with the idea that your description of slavery is, is uh, as being immoral, is a subjective notion? No, I don't. I think that basically, at the end of the day, we do have to have a framework that we're working within. So I think that's what law has to provide. And that has to be, but we can't have that framework if, there, if things are hidden, like slavery, that it's underlining our economic kind of uh, framework. Economics does not, is not, um, is, uh, from a philosophical point, our economic, our global economic uh, system is there to serve itself. It's not there to serve humanity. And therefore, it is almost a inhumane, it has no framework in the sense that in, in Nigeria, Shell, which is an international Dutch company, can um, commit human rights crimes, whereas in, um, uh, in Holland, they can't, or in England, they're restricted by the laws of, um, uh, of, 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 of Great Britain, but yet they're a transnational, and through having a transnational and open economic system, we're all participating in these kind of gross acts of inhumanity and I think that's where we start to need to put in deeper frameworks in order to protect the weak and uh, protect our environment and to protect ourselves. Okay, Brendan, where do you stand on this? Is there an underlying uh, authority 
which extends beyond our subjective view? I don't think, well obviously we live in a society in which there is an authority, there are laws and you can't break them or you will be punished and so on. I, I think deference to authority is a bad thing, I agree. Um, I think the thing that I find intriguing about today is, is that there are new forms of authority. It's no longer uh, you know, the angry god or the angry priest or those traditional, or you know, the Merry White House Brigade telling us don't watch this, don't say this, don't do that. They've kind of fallen out of favour, hugely. But there are new figures who've taken their place. Um, and I do think climate change, to a certain extent, fits into this. I was really struck by the fact that the Vatican uh, recently put solar panels on all its, some of its roofs and was showing off to the world. And I thought, wow, this is basically sun worship. But what's happened is that the Vatican has clearly recognised that a solar panel on its roof has far more moral clout for the world than a crucifix. You know, it's noticed that a shift has taken place in where authority comes from. I think... Um, but where do you stand on this underlying question then? Are you saying that uh, morality is a uh, cultural phenomenon, that we all choose our own particular moralities, Vatican is choosing theirs, as it were, uh, um, or are you saying there is some underlying framework that supports uh, the claims to morality? Well, I'm not a relativist, so I don't think all moral um, systems are equally valid. Um, some are better than others. I think there is a generally, there is a very basic objective moral framework that the vast majority of people adhere to. For example, thou shalt not kill. I mean, most people think that's a good idea. Thou shalt not steal. If you want to go back, people think those are pretty good. I, yes, they come from your authority, your religious authority figure, though, didn't they? Right, but, no, but, but the thing is, I do disagree with that because the largest, um, in, second largest industry in the world is the arms industry. So, it, and the Pentagon has predicted, like, like exponential growth in conflict. So thou shall not kill is again yeah. a, a facade. It doesn't exist within I mean, our conflict industrial growth kind of driven globe. I, I agree, but the thing is, um, what I'm saying is that for most ordinary people who consider themselves moral beings, they would adhere to those objective moral rules and then, they w and then within that I think people must be free to determine their own moral existence. Just one quick point I think what we have today is, is a quite a narrow morality. I often meet young people who say that they won't wear a certain thing they won't eat a certain thing because they don't want to partake in the kind of systems that you're describing. 50 or 60 years ago young people would have tried to change those systems to change the world. That was their moral political approach. Now it's much more about opting out. It's much more about keeping yourself morally clean. I'm not going to wear leather shoes. I'm not going to eat McDonald's. It's about absolving yourself of, of the sins of mankind. That, I think, is an extremely narrow form of morality and not helpful at all. Well, I think morality is definitely contextual in the sense that um, I find it difficult to believe that people exi existing a thousand years ago were necessarily that much worse than us, even though they did things that we would now consider to be totally um, unacceptable and beyond the pale. Um, having said that, I think that you can, add, you can extract general principles from... Um, the authorities, which authority figures, uh, whether they be philosophers, religious figures or religious texts or uh, indeed fictional texts as well. Um, and I think that the two things that always seem for me to be in, uh, in a balance are judgment, i.e. judgment of whether somebody's doing something wrong or unfair either to you or to someone else. That I think is a universal thing. Tempered then with compassion. 
compassion being that that person might be in a particular situation and that may be a, there may be a reason why they are doing that thing. So I came back to my, if I may, just a small example. So Jane Austen is one of the geniuses of the world and, the, and one of the reasons why she is a moralist and, as a, and a great author is because she presents those situations so well. An example, so in Emma, her fantastic novel, Emma is rich, beautiful, young and looking for a husband. She goes on a picnic um, and uh, a box hill. It's a very famous scene in the novel. There's another character called Miss Bates. Now, Miss Bates is older and poorer. She is also an extremely annoying individual. Throughout the novel, she has been incredibly dull. She blathers on in this extraordinary sort of dashed style. Whenever she appears on the scene, we all know that both Austin, Emma, and the reader are laughing at her. She is a for- she's a figure of fun, a satirical figure. At that, at that picnic, though, Emma mocks her for being dull. And at that point, Mr. Knightley, who is the sort of older sort of moral force within the novel, corrects Emma and says, you, you should not have done that because her situation should have um, gained your compassion. Her situation is that Miss Bates is a lot poorer, less powerful. She has her own reasons and for respecting Emma. And that Emma, Austin herself, and the reader get corrected by Mr. Knightley's intervention. What makes it... Another level is that Mr. Knightley himself is not necessarily acting from pure principles because earlier Emma, who he, who he loves or will come to love, has been flirting with Frank Churchill. So when he comes to make his judgment on Emma, he is also then uh, in a way claiming her for himself. That's one example of the complexity of a moral situation. You can't ever, when you make a judgment, you always have to be aware of what your own interests might be in making that judgment and it has to always be tempered by compassion but that doesn't mean that the idea of judgment per se um, can ever be abolished. Theme two. So I'd like to move on from, I think we've got some sort of clarity here. I think um, uh, on one side we have those who see morality as not being objective and uh, on the other side Uh, we have those who think there is some objective framework. The question I then want to pose to to the panellists is how, in both cases then, do we arrive at what the morality is? How do we access this morality if it is objective? And if if there isn't a morality, how do we determine what it is? How do we go about it? And uh, everyone will have their own morality, presumably, um, if we take a subjective approach. Well, isn't, isn't it then just a way of justifying what we happen to believe anyway? Naomi. Um, so I think in some ways the very uh, rule-driven, absolutist moral picture that I've been saying that we should uh, reject is a kind of natural, uh, has a natural counterpart in the very uh, narrow view of uh, rational self-interest that says that basically it's always rational just to pursue your own, kind of maximise your own pleasure or something like that. And I think um, probably if we were really clear-sighted about things, we would re-evaluate not just 
the moral rules, but also this kind of uh, obsessive pursuit of narrow pleasure and so on. And I think that that means that in thinking how to live, we should not, uh, if we get rid of those rules, we will not just be going around being preference satisfiers. We will actually have the capacity to expand and re-evaluate our preferences. So there's a nice example from um, the philosopher Bernard Williams um, to, uh, arguing against a kind of rule rule, very rule-governed view of morality. Um, and he has the example of someone, I think their wife falls out of a boat and they're in the boat and there's their wife flailing around in the water and of course one thinks one needs that, that, that the man uh, should go and save her. But William says... Um, would it really be the right thing, the morally kind of virtuous thing for him to do, to think, oh, let me maximize the total amount of happiness in the world, let me follow the Kantian moral imperative, let me save my wife. No, it, uh, Williams thinks actually that would be one thought too many. The really morally virtuous person will just want to save her and will jump in because he wants to save her and I think that's revelatory because that suggests you don't necessarily need these rules they might even distort the, the kind of the virtue of your act if you were thinking about calculations when you jumped in but what, but, what, makes, but it, what makes it moral at all then but, why don't you just say well, well that's what humans do you know they, they, they form, they've got close relationships if someone they know well is potentially drowning they jump in but why, why well, call this moral well I, I think it suggests a middle ground because the very very the sort of perhaps what an economist or I mean I'm slightly exaggerating but, but what a very narrow view of self-interest would say is that human beings actually when they're not being moral according to some rules are just going around maximizing their own pleasure and I think what that shows is actually human beings have a capacity to get pleasure and satisfaction from doing things that are actually beneficial to other people. Now the wife case is not expanding your moral vision very far, but I think that that gives a suggestion of how we could rethink our kind of ethical relationship to other people that would actually, instead of being a, uh, an ethic of self-denial, where you have to deny your own preferences to go and get wet and save your wife, you think of actually it's an ethic of flourishing, of virtue, of, of, of having a, a richer sort of character, where your own interest sort of coincides with the interests of but others. But I'm still unclear. Yeah. How Maybe do we it's decide not ethical then. I, I still, how do we decide what that morality is? I mean, that was the question I was posing to you. Mm. Um, well, I don't uh, think there are any rules. And then if that there aren't sense, any rules, how do you... I, I'm actually with uh, somebody here that I think that uh, probably at this point, um, if we don't appeal to traditional ethical rules, of course we can use them, we can imaginatively adopt the perspective of an impartial, you know, the point of view of the universe. Um, but I think actually novels are going to be just as good a guide to this, and there just isn't an answer that's there already that we've got to but, arrive at. But if there are no rules, mm. and people hold different mm. positions, why do, we, why do we need it at all? I mean, why not just abandon this, this, this language of morality and just say, well, this is what I just choose. I, I, I choose to jump in after my uh, drowning wife or, or whatever it is. Uh, why, why, do I, why do I have to justify this by saying it's also moral, especially if I can give no grounds, no rules to, to explain that justification? Well, I, just one thing. I mean, I mentioned Rousseau before. I do think that, that sinister as some aspects of his vision might be. His idea that actually we might... Um, somehow um, encounter a, a lawgiver, this inspiring figure who would not, um, not uh, compel us through violence, but would rather sort of inspire us through a kind of vision of how we could cooperate together. I think that idea that you might... that. Um, that while we might acknowledge that there are not absolute rules, we might nonetheless somehow hope for some figures, novels, 
ideas to inspire us to um, cooperate okay. together. That's yeah, possible. Uh, uh, let me just, just, uh, yeah. I'll come back to you. Brendan, I mean, there are no rules? Um, no, obviously there are rules, uh, whether we like them or not, and we like some of them and we don't like others. No, obviously, because Naomi obviously doesn't agree with you. <laughs> the, no, government I mean, imp- the government can punish us if we yeah, don't Yeah, morality do this, is coded in law. that's not morality, that's well, just law, well, right? Well, old forms of morality are coded in law. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Oh. But my mm. view is that, in terms of the objectives and the subjective, my view is that imposed morality is generally a very bad thing and also a contradiction in terms and also it doesn't work people react against it you know when I was I was taught it by Dominican nuns who would say to us 14 year old boys don't masturbate I mean can you imagine telling 14 year old boys not not to masturbate like telling them not to breathe or something and of course you just react you just think why should I not do that and then you go home and do it so that's the kind of reaction that you have to imposed morality it feels wrong to be told what to do at that level but uh, but the thing is we can't, I, I'm in favour of moral autonomy so there's no contradiction I think between being a moral being and being an autonomous being and this is the point Kant makes if you read Kant's very short essay What is Enlightenment? It's online I suggest you all Google it if you haven't read it it's, it's fascinating, it's so current it's so relevant, it could have been written today it's yes, basically... He, his answer was, no, was, it, was, that, was that reason was the way that we reached morality yes, no, but, the th- um, but he, it's basically and he thought an argument and all arrive at reason would leave it, lead us all to the same rule right? no, no, but he's, if you yeah. read What is Enlightenment it's basically an argument against the natural state and, and imposed morality. He says he's sick of having books that think for him, physicians that prescribe his diet, yeah. people who tell him how to live. And he says what we need is freedom. Freedom to discover, to use our reason and to become moral beings. We have a repeat of that now where we have physicians telling us what to eat, parenting gurus telling us how to raise our children. Yeah. So, so the, the, the need for moral reasoning is as strong now as it was at, at any time. I think, Sam, you're key to it. I think there's a difference between using ethics and morality to control, right, which is what you're talking about, i.e. female, you know, female mutilation, right, female circumcision or that you can't masturbate when actually, or, or nuns telling you you can't masturbate, that is a form of control. That is fear tactics, utilizing morals as the higher ground, right? There is also a difference from ethics and morals coming from a place of causing least harm possible. We actually do need to think about the collective in all our decisions decisions because we have a huge impact on other people's lives just by simple decisions we're making for ourselves and that deserves consideration deep consideration and I think that the fact that that there are laws based on morality in the sense of protection and causing least harm possible so I don't think not having a framework which is what Adam Smith who's the founder of our economic system fought for and here we are in a global mess with huge despicable behaviours happening at the, the, at the desire of people's own interest. Billionaires, billionaires collecting huge amounts of capital and actually not sharing and causing a much more kind of poverty-stricken slave mentality world. But, but, sorry, can, but, I, can I come yeah. in there? Sorry, okay. um, so, uh, For me, morality is more like uh, language than it is a set of rules. It's something that we all share and we all know kind of what it means when somebody says that they are trustworthy or we know when we say that person, they're really honest or that person, they're very kind. So it's a negotiation between people. We all generally share the language of understanding of morality, but 
when it comes down to the details, there's a level of discussion. Now, there have been two specific issues that have been brought up here, which I think show that we haven't really abandoned morality. We've just shifted the focus. So, masturbation, for example. So, we had this sort of idea where the nuns told you not to masturbate. I'm sure that was a great um, harm to you. Um, but wasn't there something in what they were saying, in the sense that a sort of highly pornographized masturbatory culture which we have at the moment which is a lot about self-fulfillment and not about the interaction interpersonal sexual relationship well, with another person is you know the way that that rule came up can easily be mocked but there's something behind it similarly with FGM I'll but, come, but, but, uh, but, but the, la- the, 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 the shame around masturbation I would argue fueled the pornification of our world that was a fundamentally extraordinarily separating. It's an unrealistic aspiration, but when it comes down to it, um, when we tell people that it's it shaming. is better for you to um, it is better for you to love someone and have a sexual relationship with someone with whom you love, that is an ideal which is not has something to be said for it. Similarly, even things that we we sort of you know female genital mutilation. Now, it's something that I personally think is a pretty um, abhorrent. On the other hand, I do understand that there are certain places in sub-Saharan Africa where um, there are reasons why um, these kind of operations take place. For example, some of the women who do it to their daughters feel like they are protecting their girls from rape. Now, this is why morally, morality has to be contextual. You can still say that this is a practice we don't believe should exist, and certainly when in the context of Britain it shouldn't exist, but when it comes down to saying things like, you know, we have to temper our judgments, our moral judgments, with the idea that that person might be in a different situation that we cannot really understand. And I think that that, that is very, very important. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Theme three. Uh, I'd like to try and... uh, We can debate individual examples of morality, and we can trade between ourselves our own moral rectitude and say how wonderfully good we are. That's not what we're about here. We're trying to identify what it is about morality and what its relationship is and how we discover it or not discover it. So there's one proposal which was that morality was driven by reason and that reason would arrive at an outcome which was the right one. Naomi uh, made the case that the problem is that uh, people applying reason come up with lots of different answers to what morality is. So what do either of you say to that? Reason doesn't uh, uh, enable us to arrive at a morality that we can get everyone to agree to. So where does that leave this objective morality? Well, I think um, 
I don't think that's the point. I don't think the point of allowing people the freedom to use their reason in everyday life and to make moral choices and to be morally autonomous is about arriving at some huge objective moral framework that then everyone will follow like lemons. That's not what it's about. It's about allowing people the freedom to determine their own moral destinies and to shape their own moral lives as they see fit. This is not relativism. This is, this is freedom. And I, I actually agree that you know we've shifted now completely just on the masturbation question but I will make a broader point I'm not being specific uh, we have shifted from a situation where people were told don't masturbate you'll go blind you'll become a lunatic which was a bad thing to say to kids I think to a situation now I agree where it's we're now pro-masturbation I was really shocked to read recently that the NHS gives out leaflets in some schools telling kids it's good to masturbate it's good for your health I don't think that's an improvement and I think that suggests that it's another form of intervention it's another form but of the question, but, but the question lives, but that we are trying to address is you don't think that somebody else thinks something differently. You know, you presumably don't think suicide bombers are doing something that's terribly moral. They really believe that they are doing something moral. The yeah, question, but the I'm question, not going into the question is handing out whether, with whether the question is whether the assertion that your view is moral helps explain what you're up to. No, I don't think my morality is necessarily superior to other people's, but I think the key argument I'm making is that people need to be able to discover their moral compass for themselves because that's the only way in which you can be. It, being a moral being means being responsible for the decisions you make and being in charge of your life. If you are told what to do, if things are imposed on you, then you're not in charge of your life. You're not a moral being. You are a child. You are a child in the charge of someone in authority. That's the problem. So, uh, you know, you hear this phrase all the time, rights and responsibilities, this very Blairite phrase. You know, of course you have rights, but you also have responsibilities. This gets things completely the wrong way around, I think. It's only through being free that you can become responsible. The idea that but you have all these rights... are we, really? No, I mean, but the, the, no know, we're not free at freedom. all. We're not free at I mean, all. We're That's the problem. That's why we're not moral. Why is that a problem? I mean, we live in societies. Our behaviour is always being bound by relationships to other people. Of course. It's as if we were always trying to speak our own language and it would mean that we wouldn't, it would, might be fantastic for us but we wouldn't be able no, to communicate with others. But why do you assume that freedom gives rise to anarchy? I'm talking about, of course people restrain themselves. People but sacrifice their lives to bring up children. But, but they do all sorts, but they are the, generally free. I mean, I love also Kant's What's Enlightenment and I think that vision of people thinking for themselves, dare to, what is it, sapere, oh dear, what, oh, I don't know how to pronounce it. So dare to think for yourself, right? So that's really beautiful. But if you don't believe like Hume in a sort of common human nature or like Kant in a sort of common root of reason that's all going to get us in the same moral place, then it could lead to anarchy this. And I think it's interesting then, if you really believe in this kind of ethic of self-definition self and all that, what do you do? And it might be that then politics has to come in. And I actually think that the point of view of the universe, that sort of impersonal kind of standpoint, which I actually think is inappropriate and unhealthy for human beings individually to take up very often. I think it's wrong, like the man, when he saves his wife, he shouldn't be thinking from the point of view of the universe to save her. Um, I think maybe that is the point of view you would want the government to be taking. They should think impersonally. They should legislate impersonally. So that maybe the politics-morality distinction is helpful there to reconcile. Well, perhaps I'd like to pose uh, uh, another sort of aspect to this, which is, is our, uh, uh, our use of morality uh, or, or lack of it uh, to a considerable degree in contemporary life damaging or is morality, the, <clears throat> the adoption of moral uh, principles, itself dangerous? So do we think morality 
you know, is itself a, 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 so, a source of good, or, or is it possible that morality itself is uh, a source of uh, a source of danger? Yeah, sorry. Um, we talked about rules and, ad- and, and advice and all the rest of it. I mean, we have friends who we go to and we ask them advice because we think they might have wisdom about a particular experience. It might be because they've gone through similar, something similar. That's why we talk to older people and our parents. And I think for me, these sort of uh, vast sources of authority which seem to be um, uh, uh, seem to be sort of being dismissed in, by some people in this discussion do have a lot more to tell us um, through an accumulating wisdom of experience, you know, for, so you know you can learn a lot from Homer. You can learn a lot from the Bible. You can learn a lot from these various philosophers as well. That doesn't mean you don't challenge them. They're not designed to be simply tell you the truth, but they're designed to say that other people have thought about these things as well. And I think it's this kind of a little bit sort of. Um, uh, strange to think that us on, on our own could come to um, particular judgments. We talked about Kant before. I, I just want yeah. to move on from that. I mean, we, there are clearly two very different positions here. So I want to move on to the question of whether morality is, or the appeal to morality is a damaging, is a dangerous thing, or whether the appeal to morality is a good and positive thing. It's like language. Language can be beautiful or language can be damaging. It depends how you wield it. It can be very damaging. Yeah and it can be very dangerous and I think we see that you know throughout history I mean right now Ireland you know is anti-abortion is illegal to have an abortion in Ireland for me that is a moral stance like that they're taking so you're you know, so in that sense I feel that causes and puts women in a situation of real danger and harm if you look at the moral laws around prostitution that has also put a lot of very vulnerable women in um, um, situations where they're in more danger. I think that the, the, the thing around morals and ethics is that we're in an ever-changing world, so they have to be uh, forever shifting, and we have to keep ourselves so informed, and that's what I meant about the transparency. We have to continually educate ourselves, and I absolutely agree that from a personal position, we should constantly be challenging ourselves and opening ourselves up to understanding empathy and educating ourselves of the other side of the story to be able to come to conclusions of what would be the best way forward. So that's my, yes, morals are extraordinarily dangerous. Are they dangerous? Uh, sometimes, I suppose, they can be uh, in the wrong people's hands. But my morality, just going back to Samir's point, my morality is the morality of the Enlightenment, which was fundamentally about calling authority into question. You know, the, the motto of the Royal Society when it was founded, great scientific Enlightenment body, was on the authority of no one. This is the attitude they have. It sounds extremely radical to us now because we are surrounded by new forms of authority. The tyranny of expertise, as some people refer to it. And of course, when you criticise this expert class, when you say we don't need these people to tell us how to raise our kids, what we should eat, how thin we should be and so on, people will accuse you, and I think maybe Samir was getting at this, of being a philistine, of being anti-expert, anti-authority. That's not the case at all. Of course, through self-discovery, through people developing their own reason, they will read classic texts. They will talk to older people who they know. They will look back at what people have done in the past. That's a genuine enlightened approach where you you explore human history and everyday life as part of the process of becoming a moral creature. But I think the new... 
No, but the, of course they have. But the new forms of authority we have now, which have replaced the old forms of authority, I think are actually a block on the very thing Kant was talking about, which was the freedom of people to use their reason in everyday life. It's just that we now have people who seem to us very trendy, not at all like Mary Whitehouse, very concerned about the environment, very concerned about poor people's waistlines, you know, they're obsessed with obesity and so on. But just because they have that appearance of being liberal and nice doesn't for one minute mean that they aren't repeating the sins of the former forms of authority that used to strangle people's autonomy. So uh, I would uh, go straight back to the Royal Society motto, on the authority of no one. When, that, when super nanny knocks on your door and tells you how to raise your children, you should slam it in her face and say, on the authority of no one. That's the Kantian approach. But this question of whether it's dangerous, I mean, it's obviously the case that many groups of people who are fervently believing that they're doing right have done things which are terrible. Yeah, like your so how do, we, how do we stop your... <laughs> how do we stop this appeal to morality ending up as being the opposite of being immoral and, in, and actually causing damage? In, I would say that in most cases, uh, morality becomes immoral or wrong or bad or wicked when it stifles freedom. If you look historically, at every, uh, you know, right from, let's just in the modern period, right from the fascists to ISIS, right? And I think these are very different phenomena, by the way. But uh, things go horribly wrong when you, dis when you destroy freedom. You know, when ISIS blows people up in a, in a nightclub, in, or kills people in a nightclub in Paris, and they, they issue a statement saying, we despise your free, vice-ridden, open society. They hate freedom. So all those instances, particularly in the modern period when morality has gone down that route, it's been because freedom has been curtailed. And people react against that and people get angry about that. I would always, always emphasise the freedom of the individual to govern his or her own life and to, to live as they want to live. That is a far more reliable way for people to become moral citizens than through instruction. And you don't think that if people choose a morality freely that it could also still be dangerous, that they could choose to do things and think that they're doing right while at same time killing people. Of course, but, th of course, but th then they are morally responsible for what they do and they will be punished for that. It's really striking. So Barack Obama last week went to the site of Hiroshima and uh, did a really beautiful speech about what, the, um, what, what that place means. Now, every single president of the United States has said since then that they would have dropped that bomb, which I think killed 170,000 people for a greater cause. So the idea that it's only other people who believe in, kill, in mass killing in order to preserve an ideological or indeed justified as the Second World War cause was, is not true. I think we all have violence. Um, viol we do believe in thou shalt not kill, but we also believe in protecting our own societies. And um, the cost-benefit analysis of that is something that we can, we can really debate. So just another point I want to make is that we have violence embedded with our own, within our own society as well, and it's not just the other who commits it. Mm. And so, just uh, I'd like to open this out to the, to the audience uh, very shortly. One last question then, Naomi. If we stopped justifying our actions by morality altogether, we just, we just gave this up, we just thought, actually, it's really just a way of saying, you know, I approve of this, and, and we don't need it, um, what, what impact would that have? Um, I think, in general, um, getting rid of uh, concepts like that's right, that's wrong, um, morally right, morally wrong, would be beneficial 
I think that they tend to shut down debate. They tend to be, you, you could, if, if I say, oh, go left at the crossroads, and then someone says, why? And I say, because that's the way to get to the station. And then they say, but I don't want to get to the station. Um, then we can carry on the conversation and say, where do you want to go? But if I say, don't do that because it's wrong, and they say, why? I say, no, it's just morally wrong. That shuts things down. I think it's, it's generally bad. So I think we should get rid of right and wrong and some of these other kind of very what are known as thin moral concepts. However, I do agree with the point made that, that some concepts such as honest, um, maybe you know, trustworthy, um, uh, uh, magnanimous, these sorts of character trait concepts are really, really important. They are the stuff of our great literature and the stuff of really nuanced conversations about how to okay. live. So we can leave those. Yeah. Can, can yeah. I, Brendan, so, so there's a counter-argument that the, these moral words are precisely a counter to your freedom. That, that, that Naomi's saying they shut things down, that the very call to this is good is a way of, as a, as a parent might say to a child, don't do that, you know, that's bad. It's a way of shutting it down. I don't want to talk to you about this anymore. This is what you've got to do. But yes, partly we discover what's good and bad through being instructed in childhood. I mean, we all have that memory of, you know, don't touch the stove, you'll get burnt, or don't slap your sister. Of course, you discover basic rules. But in terms of your life's moral framework, I would still say the best way to discover that is through making free choices, not being told how to behave. And I think all those character traits you describe, I think they're great character traits. And I, in my experience, the majority of people I've met in life share them and we have them. We might freely choose them. Right. right. And, yeah. and but not under the guise of this, um, I would say, we shouldn't be choosing them under the guise of this kind of God-given or society-given or whatever rule that it right to do of this. Of course, and, it, and the point yeah, I was yeah. making is that it, when, it, when it becomes a, a God-given or society-given rule that you should be like this, people tend to react against that and it tends not to work. But I, the, the So are we, are we really sort of finding agreement well, here on well, the idea well, that we'd I, be better I, to give up I on I the use of morality at all? No, can no, I just uh, say something? My family built a whole company that changed the way business was done. It, it, it introduced a whole different culture to business, which was socially responsible business, but they did a lot more because they got politically involved. They weren't the only company. They convened with Ben & Jerry's, Patagonia, and created a network of corporations that believed that, that corporations were there to serve society fundamentally and in their main purpose to change things to make it to make the world a better place right now there are very very small philosophical thinking corporations that have affected fantastic change and the whole premise of doing that and they've done incredible things was based on what was right and what was wrong understanding that actually there had to be limits to their decisions Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.